0: Well, welcome crosstowners. It's Jean Nathan. And I have to start the show with a shout out to John Baptiste. Yay, John. Uh, he's pretty something else, isn't he? Um, from the first time I ever booked him way before he was on network television, uh, to his final four tribute to the city. Um, he is such a fan of New Orleans. Consequently, we are such a fan of his. I love that freedom video. I just can't get enough of it. All right, on with the show. I um, have Woody Kime with me today. And um, Woody has a very interesting history, and it's a history that uh, is in the past. But as so many things are in New Orleans, it has a, a present that is important for us to really understand. Um, so you may or may not have seen a story just the other day in the advocate about the irises growing along a stretch that was once a main street, if I get this correct, of, um, of Fazanville, which was a very special small village in St. Bernard and Woody's ancestor, um, was the founder of it. So I can't think of a better person to... Um, get some uh, enlightenment about it, it's past and what's happening right now. Um, The irises oddly, and I am crazy about irises, and and Louisiana irises are actually world famous. We may not, many of us know that, but there's such a variety of species here and they have been featured at botanical gardens in other places. And we're still trying to trace down uh, some of them to, to this day. Um, but uh, some of them just popped open because this is iris season and um, they're quite a beautiful flower. And of course, related to the symbol, the French symbol, which is actually based on the iris that we, uh, is our logo for this region. Uh, Woody, um, I need to understand what your, is it great-grandfather?
1: Great-great-grandfather.
0: Great-great-grandfather was thinking when he created Fizanville and for a very special reason. So tell me about it.
1: Well, we don't know precisely what he was thinking. Uh, We do know that he inherited a piece of ground that uh, was part of what we know today as the Chalmette Battlefield uh, just, just downriver from New Orleans. Uh, he inherited this property from his mother, actually, who had who had received it uh, from her brothers, who had bought the property immediately following the Battle of New Orleans in the in the, I think it was like 1817 when they actually bought the property, which which encompassed uh, several several arpens of of uh, ground along the river. Uh, By the time my great-great-grandfather had inherited the property from his mother, it was down to one arpent wide, which is only about 210 feet. So it was 210 feet from the river into the swamps, uh, the cypress swamps there in Saint Bernard Parish. Uh, Oh, so that's
0: actually a yeah. So in, in in a sense, that would cross Saint Bernard Highway where it is today, and also Judge Perez Drive.
1: I don't know how far it went actually. Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure the extent of the property into the swamp, but okay. um, uh, most of the ground was, was swamp land, so that it wasn't really valuable to anyone. Uh, the only part that was valuable was the higher ground closer to the river, but it wasn't enough land to farm. Um, so my, I know my great grandfather took his family to uh, Mexico actually during the civil war. Uh, that that uh, He was considered to be a free man of color uh, and it, he wasn't sure what the outcome of the war was going to be. So he, um, just to, to, to uh, be safe, took the family away, awaiting the, the outcome of the Civil War. So he spent so the Civil interesting War next that
0: weekend. he would take such an aggressive step a proactive step to protect his family. Yeah. Right.
1: So when he got back from, uh, from Mexico after the war, um, uh, he had this piece of ground that really, like I said, was not big enough to farm, but he realized that there were now free people who were looking for a place to live, uh, that was not on the plantation. Uh, and, um, he had this piece of ground that he started to divvy up and sell as lots to the newly freed uh, uh, folks that were now living down in Chalmette looking for a home and uh, that's that's all we do know. We don't know what his you know whether it was a financial decision or um, whether he expansion. had uh, yeah, more more uh, more charitable ideas in mind, but uh, that's that's what we know.
0: It feels it really does feel like it was uh, uh, maybe both and, and, and both is common, both is important. And, and actually today in today's economy and, and geopolitical universe, uh, we are seeing a lot of, of people who are making decisions that have both financial is both financially driven as well as addressing the issue of social equity. So um, one can imagine very easily that he had both in mind. Uh, so a village develops, and it's not big, but um, it, it, it's 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 uh, closely um, woven uh, between the different families that live there. From what I understand, um, and they were very happy with this world. How how would you describe life in that village as you have heard about it? And it 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 survived all the way through to 1965. So. Uh, really mid-century, uh, not that long ago, I graduated college that year, I hate to admit it, but um, so it, it's, it's, um, it, 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 it's recent that we lost it. Um, so describe what that life was like in it, and then we'll talk about the losing of it
1: yeah well obviously i i i didn't live there i did actually visit fazanville though as a as a a young child i mean i was five years old when the village was was obliterated uh by the national park service but uh i do remember as a small child visiting the village we grew up uh my my home was just a few blocks away from fazanville and um I did visit um, uh, when my mom was doing Tupperware parties of all things in the village. Um, And then ultimately I had a babysitter who lived in the village uh, who didn't drive. So we would go pick her up from the village and bring her back. Um, I also had neighbors who had uh, actually grown up in the village who now lived in my neighborhood uh, who, uh, you know, just the finest people you ever want to meet. And um, I, you know what what I sense from the people who I've talked with uh, who lived in the village and who had family in the village is that family and community was of the utmost importance. Um, you know you have to imagine these these people originally, their families were enslaved. and then suddenly they were in they were able to live in their own community, uh, in the small little village. and and self-reliance was a big thing. they 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 didn't depend on the the government in any way. They didn't, they didn't even want the police coming back there if there was a problem. They took care of their own problems. Uh, if there was an issue, they handled it within the village. Uh, but, uh, I, and the church was also very important. But uh, something that I, I, I you know, heard from almost every single person I've talked to that lived there was that education was most important. They knew that the way out of poverty and the way out of slavery was to be educated. And so many people uh, from the village, the families, uh, raise children to go to college and to get advanced degrees and to become educators in a lot of cases.
0: Interesting. Um, So all the more reason here you have people who are committed to preparing for the future and then the future crumbles in front of them because some folks apparently wanted to extend the battlefield. And maybe you can explain that to me. And, 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 and well-meaning people in a way, in the sense that uh, they wanted to create this historic site. They wanted to, preservationists were involved in making it happen. The National Park Service was in, involved in making it happen. But the, the, the damage was to these families. That we're trying to make a way in a in, a, in, a, in, a, in for them a new world and, and kind of um, make up for some pretty bad times. You can't imagine how bad slavery is if you didn't experience it, but um, we we know enough about it to know that it, it was no uh, joyride. So, I, t- tell me uh, what happened and um, and then how ha- how people had to uh, to to um, make make a new life and, and the way I understand it basically is that people did not want to give up their property so ultimately um, <clears throat> the federal government took it from them and did not give them the value of the property only half of what it would have been at the time so that that's all I know
1: so um... The Park Service at one time felt like the bat. Well, first of all, the, the, there were there were there were two uh, Park Service entities. There's a national cemetery which was on the east side of of uh, and then the national park, which was just a one road park basically, uh, that was on the west side of Fazanville. So back in the 50s, I think, is when this thought, this idea came to the Park Service and people who were interested in preserving the battlefield that they wanted to connect the, the, the cemetery with the, with the Battlefield Park. Um, unfortunately, Fazanville was right in the middle of all that. And uh, the Park Service at that time believed that uh, was an anachronism it was it was not of the time of the battle therefore it had to go um, so an event that took five days back in 1815 which was the battle of new orleans took precedence over the people who lived in this village that had been there for almost 100 years um, and you're correct that the um uh, the the amount that they were paying for the properties was far below the market value. They were paying six thousand dollars per lot uh, to people who lived in Fazanville, when other properties of similar size in Chalmette were were, were going for sixteen thousand dollars. So it oh. was uh, almost almost a third of what the value should have been. So, uh,
0: I, but I think the point that you just made about if if the history is the issue. Five years taking precedence over a hundred years of a Five community. days, five days over a
1: hundred years. Five days
0: rather, what did I say? Five days, five,
1: years.
0: Yeah. Five, five days over a hundred years. That really falls into the category that we have come to know today as a result of all of the protests that we've been experiencing for the past few years. And of course, a lot more history than that. Uh, going back to the civil rights movement and so on, as social a question of social justice of, of sure. social equity. If if there's ever an example of the lack of it, uh, it, it is what happened. At in fact, you know, I happen to know, and 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 this is not a nice thing for me to do necessarily. Ancestors of Martha Robinson, so Toto Robinson, who is in, was in the lumber business. I think he may be retired. Um, he's still around and he's a friend. I'm gonna call him and I'm gonna say, you know what? You need to help make good on this. And there's talk of c- trying to restore in some way markers in a sense of the history of that village through of all things, flowers. I mean, um, so how could somebody who owns a lumber business maybe help build um, some kind of a framing for that i'm gonna have to try to catch this phone and turn it off (coughs) somebody else should do it but they're not doing it okay so whoops i thought i hung it up but i didn't one second i'll be editing this out no problem i have to hang up i'm on a zoom please call back um So, you know, we'll see what he says. Uh, You know, I don't think he really runs the company anymore. He, but uh, I think it's the son of his now. Um, See, maybe there's something that can be done. So, my question to you is this: This story erupts once again out of this peculiar connection with the irises that have popped out, and people are seeing them, and and some know the history and recall that they were there in the village. And some of the flowers that are planted are not native to this area. And um, uh, if I understand correctly, are native to Africa, which tells you something. Um, and so um, it, it, it's a it's a peculiar moment that these irises popping up in the spring of 22 is calling attention to what happens in in uh, Fezanville at a time when we are actually faced with possibly um, kind of other uh, possible um, events that could take out other parts of St. Bernard um, in conjunction with the, um, the port that is being discussed. So that's part of what interests me about this is that we, we may be seeing history repeat, but, but tell me who first noticed these flowers and, and how do we get back to the history of Faisonville through these
1: irises? So from what I understand, and I, I, I just recently heard about the irises myself, apparently they were discovered you know, years ago, um, the irises as well as the, the crinum or crinum, I don't know how to even pronounce the name of that, the other flower, and that's the one that is non-native to Louisiana. That uh, is native to Africa, and they believe may have been brought over originally by the by the folks who you know or the families of the folks who planted them uh, from Africa, uh, and they're 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 not quite as prevalent out in the battlefield, but the uh, the irises are, and there's you know we don't know for sure if they were planted by the people who lived in Fazanville, but it's uh it's it can't be a coincidence that the flowers only grow on the east side of where the Fazanville Road was. And they only grow for about 200 feet from that road. The, the size of the properties uh, uh, in Fazanville was 200 feet uh, from the road. So uh, it's, um, I, I think the evidence certainly leads us to believe that the, the, the flowers were planted there purposefully uh, because they only appear on the field in that area where the houses were uh, in Fazanville.
0: That's uh, so interesting. And, and it's, it's, it's so uh, uh, peculiar and interesting that something in a way diminutive on the horizon could open uh, the doors again to a much bigger story. So tell me where, where do we go from here now in terms of the future of having identified this stretch uh, and here it is. It's. It's. I guess it's within the border of the battlefield. Is there any possibility of there being more of a representation of what was there? Is that being considered? And and you said you mentioned it was the National Park Service that ultimately um, was complicit. Let's say in in the in the destruction of the village. So maybe the Park Service might be interested in trying to in some way restore. Some representation of that past, Is that what we're talking about?
1: I, I know I know several of the families who live there uh, would love to see some some more done as far as uh, some uh, at least representing the history of, of the village there. As we said before, it was a hundred years of history on that land versus the five days of the Battle in New Orleans. Uh, so I, I believe that you know the Park Service is trying. To do, to do something. They have been you know, adding markers uh, to, the, to the battleground park. And also, uh, they allowed a, a historical marker outside of the park at the front gate of uh, the battlefield uh, to, uh, you know, to, to tell the history of Fazanville. Um, they have been better at uh, provi- you know, providing more history of the land. Uh, by by these markers. Now the people who live there, of course, would like more. They would like to see a museum built uh, that uh, would tell the history of this this hundred-year history of the village that uh, to them is so important, and actually is is uh, maybe uh, representative of of a bigger picture that we we can learn from. Um, and I think that that's where they they believe that the park service is, is not quite there yet. Um, so. So I think we're just at the beginning of the story,
0: the the revival of this story, and um, I I know that what I'm going to want to do is talk to park service people, I may want to talk to the people who are part of the Iris Conservation Initiative that are trying to do something about um, the irises throughout Louisiana are very famous, and we're losing them because, of course, of continued industrialization and the loss of, of natural land. Um, but I think also I'm, I'm very interested in the implications of this for the potential of this kind of destruction of, of um, places that people live and the, the things that were there. I mean, you had a school, you had a church, you had um, shopping, you had bars right? I mean, if you have bar rooms, you have a community. So, um, <laughs> um, you know, this, this could be happening again with some areas of, of the parish that are challenged by the plans for a um, uh, the uh, containerized shipping facility that's being um, considered in St. Bernard. So I, I'm interested in in, in that um, connection. Um, Woody, what's, what's your feeling about this? I, I'm going to I, I, I'm going to continue to, I'm, as I say, I'm going to look into a little, you know, uh, as, as some of the people in television say, w- watch this space, we're going to continue the story. But, but what's, what's your instinct about it? What, what's your feeling about it? As a descendant of the man who actually sold that land to the people who lived there for 100 years before it was all taken away from them?
1: Um, I, I guess as far as uh, you know what, what I guess my, I'm doing my part to try to preserve the history by by telling the story uh, and and work and, and uh, producing a documentary which hopefully will be seen in the fall uh, on uh, Louisiana Louisiana Public Broadcasting um, and uh, that in that way' I, I'm, I'm doing what I can um, I I would hope that the Park Service would at some point see the benefit in telling the telling the entire story of that piece of ground. um, Not just as the battleground of the Battle of New Orleans, but as something that was much more uh, for much longer. And uh, probably meant a lot more to, you know, to people personally on a personal level, because they they lived there for 100 years. Their, Their community was there for 100 years. And, uh, you know, talking about the irises uh, kind of defiantly poking their heads up uh, to to say, hey, we, you know, there was somebody here uh, before. Uh, and uh, I, I kind of think it, it's so symbolic of uh, of uh, the, the, the spirit, I guess, of Fazanville still kind of hovering hovering over that battlefield. Uh, and every spring we get a reminder that people did live here at one time.
0: I, I I think it's a it's a it's a very, in a way almost poetic, but yet tragic story that um, a community that really strove uh, to to make something happen. And a hundred years is a long time to keep at it, and that's that's at least three generations of the families mm-hmm. um, involved. And um, so I, I just want to close our interview by asking uh, listeners uh, to this program. Um, and readers who are going to read my newsletter that we put out also uh, for Crosstown Conversations um, to get in touch with me and, and um, let me know, you know, your uh, knowledge of what happened and and your concerns about it. So, um, as I said, this is the beginning of, of something we're going to really um, continue to uh, follow this story. Uh, please stay in touch, Woody, and uh, congratulations and thank you for doing the documentary. And uh, keep me um, keep me up to date on that. And I know I think you 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 promised me, and I'm going to say this publicly, which is mean of me, but. You promised me some stills of those irises. I went out and took pictures of beautiful irises in City Park yesterday. They're all in bloom. It's gorgeous, I love irises. And um, so I would appreciate um, seeing the ones that are really right there in Faisonville. I might try to get out there myself, but um, thank you so much for making time for me and please stay in touch. Uh, Sure will, thank you so much, Ms. Nathan. Anybody that you're in connection with that um, has something to say about this. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much very much. I really appreciate what your great great grandfather did and what you're doing. All All right. right.
1: Take care. Thanks.
0: Bye bye. Bye bye. Kevin Kellop is um, a creative fellow, uh, a resident of Algiers. Am I right? Yes. Okay. And um, he is involved in a really interesting and fun event happening this weekend and he's going to give us all the details. Um, but I can tell you that one thing it does is involve people who make things creative people, both who are uh, leading the effort, but also who will be attending. Um, and uh, it's part of uh, telling people about um, living on the West Bank, living in Algiers, but also about all of the creativity that we have in our city. So Kevin, give us the the, the basic outline of the event, first of all, and then we'll delve into aspects of it.
2: Okay, so uh, the most basic outline for um, the Make It in Old Algiers Festival um, is an effort uh, to connect uh, culture, commerce, and community in Old
0: Algiers. That says a lot right there. <laughs> um, so it, uh, tell us the day, the time, the place. Before we go further, we'll repeat that at the end. Go ahead.
2: Okay. Okay. so we're going to be having this event on Saturday, April 9th, and it'll be from 12 noon to 5 p.m. It'll be located in the backyard, um, the playground at Alon Academy, and that's located at 709 Park Boulevard, um, where you can enter through the Lawrence Street. um, That can be accessed really easily from Mardi Gras Boulevard under the bridge in Old Algiers.
0: That's what I wanted because, you know, uh, not everybody in the city um, uh, makes that bridge all the time. And so it's, a, they have, you, you have to persuade them. I'm from New York City where you can't go anywhere without going over a bridge. I mean, there's a bridge because it's a series of islands, basically. And so it's the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island. You got to go over bridges. But here people are a little more leery of them. So um, I like to try to make it easy for them. So we'll come back to that. Um, because you come off the bridge and you look for what?
2: For Mardi Gras Boulevard, which can be easily accessed from L.B. Landry Avenue, uh, intersects with uh, Mardi Gras Boulevard, and then you make that left, and uh, you'll find the school on your right-hand side.
0: Well, that sounds pretty easy. Okay, (laughs) so what's going to be going on?
2: Okay, so we are um, going to be showcasing a variety of New Orleans food, um, arts and crafts vendors in the uh, Old Algiers area, and others that are not from uh, Old Algiers. Also, um, historically, Old Algiers had a lot of um, pecan trees, and there are also pecan tree groves um, that we have information from uh, the Algiers Historical Society to confirm these uh, pecan groves. And there is energy around making pecan candy or pralines in old Algiers. And so we wanna give those creatives an opportunity, those makers an opportunity to showcase their wares in front of the community. And so we'll have uh, children's make it in old Algiers activities, uh, cultural activities, as well as uh, music.
0: Well, you know, um, as much as I am uh, all about culture in the city and the creativity and commerce, that's what my organization does—the Creative Alliance of New Orleans. Uh, but you had me at pecans, <laughs> because pecans <laughs> are one of my favorite things in the world. Uh, uh, and I usually I just throw them in a pan and roast them a little bit with a little Tony Schiesser, and I'm happy girl. But um, I have a whole cookbook for how to make things with pecans. And there's nothing that uh, isn't made better with pecans. We have a little coffee shop around the corner from me. I'm on Esplanade. And, and on Bayou Road, Leo's serves croissants with a pecan center, a crushed pecan center, if you can imagine. So, um, yeah, I, I'll be there for the pecans. So um, what, what? how do you envision uh, the the families and the, and the youth that are going to be there working on things?
2: I'm sorry, you were breaking up.
0: Oh, um, yeah, I think I I saw a message at some point that we were having a little bit of uh, um, a Wi-Fi issue. How do you envision the youth and the families working on things?
2: Okay, so we'll have a a kid's tent and um, it's all about, you know, intergenerational dialogue, sharing of stories Um, we want to invite. Um, every um, segment of the generations from um, our community to come together and um, share those stories and talk, um, as well as enjoy food and music.
0: It just, it really, it's a very rich event. It really is. Um, t- tell me how you feel about living in Algiers and why that is something that you all want to uh, share with the rest of us and encourage the rest of us to consider it as a place to live. What do you like mm-hmm. about it?
2: Well, um, you know, it's it said um, a lot all over town that um, Algiers is New Orleans' best kept secret. There's a lot to discover. Um, for instance, um, the pecans back in the early days of New Orleans, from the pecan groves, um, when there wasn't access to flour, those pecans were ground up, and uh, they were used for baking um, to make flour. And so. Um, learning about the uh, flower
0: <laughs> yum mm-hmm. okay <laughs> again you got me there go ahead
2: and so uh learning about the history um there's so many stories to be told about um living in old algiers and also um just um the culture as well um and so i think that um those together is going to make for a really fun event
0: well i'm going to make it a little tough for you now because i'm curious when you say the culture, how would you describe how different the culture of Algiers is from the East Bank? I would
2: say that I would say that it's not very different. Um, Algiers is very much so New Orleans, and um, we share we share all the similarities because we're the same city, and so um, it's it's a very New Orleans event, even though it's in Algiers.
0: But you know. Uh, I don't know enough about it, but just in the past, um, you know, couple of years as we've been talking about the beginning of slavery and 1619 project, apparently there was some special history about slavery on on the West Bank too. Are are, are you conversant in that or not? Yeah,
2: well, um, Algiers was considered um, parts of Algiers was considered free town where a lot of freed slaves lived. Um, and there's also the McDonoughville Cemetery where a lot of those free people of color are, um, were buried. And so there's a lot of history um, coming, out of, um, coming out of that time period um, where there are families who have been there for multiple generations um, following um, that period. And so um, it's an opportunity to connect with those folks and maybe meet some of those families as well.
0: So they're going to be at the uh, uh, at the uh, event um, on Saturday too. So Mm
2: -hmm. certainly inviting everyone from Old Algiers and across the city as well to come and check it out.
0: So, um, what besides being a board member of an organization that's involved with promoting Algiers, what else do you do?
2: Okay, so uh, full time I work with the uh, mayor's neighborhood engagement office. Um, so coincidentally, I'm the Algiers liaison, and so oh, okay. um, we those stand-up events, and um, we do constituent concerns um, and programs like Coffee on Your Corner and Neighborhood Leaders Roundtable. So I do that as well um, on the side as well. Uh, well, it's my full-time job, and I volunteer with Old Algiers Main Street, um, which is putting on this event
0: so you're kind of a committed citizen I'd like to know how that happened not everybody you know gets out of their own uh, little world you're you're working in a bigger world not only Algiers but the city so how that happened tell me about yourself a well, little just a little bit I, I'm sorry I'm a curious person
2: <laughs> well um a little bit about me um so I'm I'm an Algerian um Algerine I've, I've been in Algiers for my entire life my both my parents um, grew up around the corner from each other. My All four of my grandparents are from Algiers, and my great-grandparents are also from Algiers. So I have a lot of history connected to the place. My uh, One of my great-great-grandfathers uh, was actually the uh, most worshipful master at the Pride of Algiers uh, Masonic Temple. Wow. And he was actually the first most worshipful master um, to help start that lodge, and so wow. um, he was also an undertaker um, and the nephew of uh, the the Mar- Henderson with the Murray Henderson Funeral Home and the Murray Henderson School that is um, in Algiers as well, and you're so steeped, just
0: received it,
2: <laughs> just being in that community and seeing you know the the work that my ancestors have done to establish a community. Um, and also work to preserve it. And I'm doing the work now to, you know, understand better what it was, what I heard it to be, what I saw it was to be. And then now to see what it is and to help to envision what it can be.
0: I'm impressed. I have to be honest. I'm definitely (laughs) impressed. Now let's go back and just recap because I'm about out of time tell me that uh it's Saturday from 12 to 5 and it is let's say you get off the bridge and you go to Mardi Gras Boulevard
2: mm-hmm. you can take L.B. Landry to Mardi Gras Boulevard
0: okay mm-hmm. and then um you're looking for the school and also a website
2: mm-hmm. oldalgiersmainstreet.org
0: that's maybe the best place to go for um, these details uh, that folks will probably forget by the time we finish talking. Um, Thank you so much for your time and uh, for everything that you're doing. I'm impressed with the commitment you've made to your community and to the city. And um, I'm a big believer in that kind of thing. So I appreciate appreciate you and what you're doing with this. And it sounds like a great time, everybody. So get out to Algiers this Saturday, 12 to five. Thank you very much for being with us for your time, and um, you will be live on the air on Friday at noon. All right,
2: thank you so much.
0: When people will hear this. Okay, <laughs> take care, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm uh, here now with um, Todd Wackerman, who is in the middle of something very important, and well new, I think we are becoming used to hearing the word STEM. Um, I think I, I would say maybe for about oh, l- let me put it this way, for a, an average citizen as opposed to somebody directly involved in it, about five years that um, that word has become prominent in, in uh, my vocabulary. And um, it, it, it really is a very, very important part of um, us developing the workforce that we need to deal with, uh, how our economy uh, globally is developing. And very important for our students and very important for our community. So let's start off with your definition of STEM. And then um, let's walk into the program that you have developed that I think is, is, is important for our city to know about.
3: Sure. And thank you for having me. So the acronym STEM stands for science, technology, engineering and math and I think a lot of people, when they hear it, think of something very, when they hear STEM, think of something very scary or foreign or beyond their grasp. But really, when we use the acronym STEM for uh, STEM Library Lab, it's really actually, it's just the sum of its parts. We offer resources for teaching science, for teaching math, and for teachers who are working on engineering and uh, technology projects, as well as robotics and coding. So this is a resource for teachers of all subjects that fall into that acronym stem
0: and 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 um, Todd I think I think it's really important for us to hit home with why this is so relevant and important for our students and our community because I think sometimes when people hear stem they think oh that's Los Angeles that's Chicago that's New York that's not Louisiana because we're 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 catching up we're still having to catch up a little bit with this whole notion of stem and by the way i have to tell you that i'm an adherent of steam which is an even newer expression that only a percentage of folks have signed on to yet but i i'm a believer in it because i believe science and the arts are all about creativity, innovation, discovery, solving problems. And so um, I do advance both. But uh, please please tell us why this is so important for um, our community.
3: Sure. When you look at the Department of Labor statistics, there are numbers that say about 75% plus of jobs in the next few years will require stem expertise and again when i say that, i mean it'll require students who are proficient in math who are proficient in science uh there are jobs that require technology for coding there are engineering jobs so it's not this nebulous thing that is stem but when we talk about stem jobs that could be jobs in the energy sector that could be jobs developing new technologies and apps and coding that could be jobs in medicine that could be uh, professorships, there's, there's all sorts of jobs. So it's not this nebulous, STEM is out there. It's, it's all of these different jobs require some aspect of science, technology, engineering, and math. And we want to make sure that we're preparing Louisiana, New Orleans, Greater New Orleans students to be able to take those jobs. Because when you look at the landscape of Greater New Orleans right now, there are so many upcoming opportunities. We are growing as a hub of technology, of new development, of course, of energy, um, of medicine, and we want to make sure that the people that are being hired for the jobs at these companies that are arriving and growing are local Greater New Orleans students, uh, and not so, being from out of state.
0: And and I think that this is uh, this is very important, not only to make sure that. The companies get the workforce they need and that our <laughs> students have the opportunities that are, are implicit. And I had no idea that it was 75%, I have to say, although I knew it was really high, but that that is that is a big number. Um, but it, it, it's also important for companies to know that we do have the workforce they need because I think they, there has been in the past a perception Of Louisiana that we were not prepared to deal with this new technological economy that that we have evolved into here and really again throughout the globe. So um, I I assume that part of what you're trying to do is exactly what you said, make sure that our students are getting the training they need to be able to participate in this growing economy, uh, but also you want folks out there who are considering whether they're gonna bring their company here or grow their company here to know that we do have the workforce they need.
3: Absolutely, I mean, it's a it's a circle. And the more prepared student, the more students that we're preparing for these jobs, the more likely companies are going to want to bring their business here. And the more business there is here, the more necessity there is to prepare students to take those jobs. So it's absolutely cyclical. And we wanna make sure that we are showcasing, putting Louisiana's best foot forward and showcasing the fact that we have the talent here to to bring this industry to Louisiana and to greater New Orleans.
0: Tell me about your um, library lab, your STEM library lab.
3: Sure, so STEM library lab is a resource center for teachers. And so we provide a number of different services that we offer to teachers in the greater New Orleans area it started out as a library of science equipment. So basically a room full of microscopes and burners and beakers and slinkies and uh, magnifying glasses and everything, and magnets, anything a teacher might need for their classroom. So that might be the expensive stuff that they couldn't afford. It might be the weird stuff like the day that you need a dozen slinkies and you're like, I don't wanna own a dozen slinkies or the day that you need magnets and iron filings. And you're like, you know what, I have $30 for magnets and iron filings, but I don't know where to get them on one day's notice. Well, everything here is free and we lend it out to schools and teachers so that a teacher who needs that stuff for their classroom can walk in, get the stuff they need, use it in their classroom and then return it when they're done. And that's how stem library lab started but it's actually growing quite a bit.
0: And- uh, now I understand the expression library because I wasn't uh, uh, totally clear on that. Uh, so the a lending library is a place where you can go to get information um, in, in primarily our traditional notion is in the form of books and documents. But now what you've done is uh, take it to the actual materials that teachers need to teach. Um, Uh, in the uh, science-based trade um, uh, areas. Uh, That's that's incredible. How did you get that off the ground and how did you fund that? That's not a slam dunk.
3: Well, that, I mean, interestingly, I would think, But you're right when if you're listening at home and you're and you're picturing this you're picturing a library, but instead of books it's full of science equipment. And so, when we started to get this off the ground I was a teacher for several years in New Orleans public schools, and I just got very frustrated but not having the resources that I needed to be able to do my job effectively and chief among those was the physical resources, the equipment. I mean, there are so many other resources and we can get that in a little bit, but there's so many things that teachers need. So a few years ago, I I just got so frustrated with this lack of ability to to find what I needed that I decided to leave the classroom and start this organization. And we went around basically to foundations and said, we want to start a library and we'd love some funding to do so. And um, it turns out that That's not a viable model for getting funding. They said, Well, we'll, we'd love to give you funding when you can prove this works. And and we said, Well, we can't start a library without Uh funding. So it it was a very, it was a uh, snowball rolling process to get this off the ground. We started actually in my co founder's um, spare room uh, with a very small, (laughs) with a single shelf and a small collection of stuff. It grew to a single classroom at uh, Bricolage, uh, Bricolage. Um, And then we moved into three classrooms at Foundation Prep, and just recently we opened a 12,000 square foot facility in uh, Jefferson Parish in Metairie that we're calling the STEM Ecosystem Hub. Um, And so we're doing that because over the course of starting this, doing this work, we realized, yes, teachers need physical stuff. To teach science effectively, you absolutely need physical stuff, and that's a right hypothesis, and the library works really well. But just like any library, a library is more than the books or the stuff on the shelves. It's the community space and it's the it's the programming that happens at the library. And it's the bringing people together that is that is the core of what a library is about. So over the course of this time, we've actually launched a number of other programs. The I guess chief among those was professional development. You know, this is all only as good as teachers knowing how to use it. So a lot of teachers struggle with science content or understanding the standards, or they're relatively new to the classroom and they're still learning their teaching practice. So we offer professional development to teachers to help them learn how to use the stuff and also just learn how to feel proficient on lab day. We also offer a what we call the teacher free store, which is separate from the library, but it's a little offshoot. So basically at the free store, any teacher can walk in and find basic classroom supplies for their for their needs. So that could be staplers or binders or decorations or a trash can or a printer. We've got a, a big room full of free stuff. And unlike the library, you don't bring it back. You just take that stuff and it's yours for your classroom. Um,
0: Fantastic, and- it's, it's really... Um- you know, I, I've just been having a conversation this morning with a gentleman who is um, anxious to bring arts uh, education back into the schools here. And he's actually on the school board. So, I mean, he's, he's pretty serious about his efforts too. It, it takes so much intentionality to move the needle on getting the things that we need into the hands of teachers and students. So it's really admirable that you've been able to get this off the ground. Who have been some of the major funders?
3: So the major funders we've had so far from philanthropic foundations would be the Brown Foundation and the Patrick Taylor Foundation are are really supporting this work, as well as the Rosemary Family Foundation. Um, In addition to that, we actually, so everything that we do here is free. And we also have some paid opportunities for schools so that if they want some more handholding and tailored support, a school can sign up for some paid opportunities. And that's another uh, major source of our funding is we do offer a paid professional development. We also offer a school membership to the co-op. So any teacher is welcome at the, at the library to borrow for free, but schools can also sign up as members and then they get some added services, including delivery and some other things.
0: So I, I can't resist asking you, because as I said in the beginning of our conversation, um, that I have a commitment to STEAM. And so how do you relate to STEAM? I, I, I can't be your primary Uh, mission, obviously, because this is, it it took a lot to get what you've done done. How long did it take you, by the way, from that, uh, that idea and that single, uh, single room to your 12,000 square feet?
3: Yeah, the, the idea was sort of started in 2016. The single room, our pilot program was 2017. We moved into our first official space in 2018. And then just last year in 2021 is when we moved into the new building. So that idea of STEAM, I think that the acronym STEM was developed very thoughtfully and specifically and deliberately. And I like the idea of saying we had a reason for combining these four disciplines and putting them together and sectioning them off. Uh, Actually, (laughs) a lot of reasons. At the same time, what we're doing here, and when we talk about the Free Store, for example, the resources that we provide at STEM Library Lab are not just STEM resources, so that acronym at the at the front of our, our business our nonprofit's name is actually a little bit deceiving because the free store is for anyone. You know, binders and staplers are needed across uh, across every school, and we have another program that we just launched called our Service Learning Program, where we offer grants to teachers to put on service learning projects in their schools. So a teacher, oh. any teacher in Louisiana and Mississippi. Can receive a grant and a program award to put on a service learning project. They would partner with a outside organization, like another nonprofit, to do a service learning project, and then, um, and that's kind of it. <laughs> you know, they, they would partner. What, what, um,
0: what do project. you mean by service learning?
3: Sure. So a service it's it's two pieces: service and learning. So the service would be something like. Um, Designing rain barrels to be able to give out into local homes to be able to catch rain and and mitigate water loss. And then the learning part of that would be learning about water loss and tying it back into the standards. And that's a great science example but actually this is not science specific or you know it doesn't have to be science specific. So it could be volunteering with a homeless shelter, and then going back into your social studies classes and talking about the the nature of you know the humanities um, standards that go along with that. So um, the service learning projects can be anything. They can be art projects as well because there are art standards and learning in art classes. So that's something open to to, um, to any teacher in Louisiana and Mississippi um, to to bring to their classrooms.
0: I think what you're doing is really important. I'm gonna assume that your um, planning for the future includes growing what you're doing. And um, I, I, I heard your subtle messaging about STEAM being maybe not as well thought out yet as it will need to be in order for it to be truly, uh, functional, and I, and I uh, agree with that because it's still a very new idea, and when you raise it, people kind of nod and say, oh, yeah, but um, uh, what that means and, and getting it to be as clear as your program, we're not there yet. So uh, on the other hand, I do think that that underlying creative process that goes into science as well as the arts, is something that um, encouraging people to to function creatively is is really important, and maybe that is the um, the heart of how a real connection between um, arts and science uh, will will be developed.
3: I very much agree, and I think you know my belief in that acronym of STEM actually has nothing to do with my. Uh, equally important belief in the value of art you know (laughs) that we want arts education and we want to prioritize arts education and if anything uh, before it's well thought through adding it to the acronym stem in some way deprioritizes it because we want to make sure that art is prevalent and prioritized and if we add it as the fifth word in a long acronym um, then it starts to then it starts to get packaged in and not stand out on its own because we we definitely I mean we actually have a lot of art resources both in the library and in the free store and we want to make sure that those are available to teachers so they can be prioritizing that in their school as well. And I think
0: that's a, I think that's a very rational um, and and uh, <laughs> uh, valid uh, way to uh, distinguish it. Well, um, Todd, I. Um, I know that you, you uh, we had a storm yesterday. So your opening of your new facility um, maybe was put off a little bit. What's your schedule now?
3: So we're actually having the grand opening on um, March 23rd. So uh, as you're listening to this, that may be in the past but that's actually okay because we are open for business. So any okay. day, any weekday from two to 6 p.m. we'd love for you to stop by and check out the space. Tell
0: me the interest exactly please for the audience.
3: Sure. It is 3011 North I-10 Service Road East in Metairie. Um, So that's right at the corner. uh, You would it's right by Bonneville in between Bonneville and Causeway.
0: Okay. And um, uh, what did I want to ask the the um, that's the location. Those are the hours. And um, as you said, it's open now so uh, people can can avail. How about your website?
3: So the website is stemlibrarylab.org and i would love to share i've told you a bunch of cool stuff that we're doing there's actually one more thing that i think is the most exciting thing that we've got in the pipe Um, and that's called the stem ecosystem database so what's been happening is teachers will walk through our door and they'll say hey we're looking to plan a family stem night with our school Um, you know, to bring everyone together and do some activities. And we'll say to them, that sounds awesome. That's not really what we do here, but you should check out STEM NOLA because they do that. Or someone will walk through and they'll say, hey, I'm looking for my, we're about to start a unit on the solar system and I'm looking for some really great like guest speakers. And we'll say, well, that's not really what we do here, but the NASA Solar System Ambassadors Program has some amazing guest speakers. So
0: Yeah, I can't tell you how important I think what you are saying just now is because, again, I work more in the uh, cultural realm, um, but we do not have any kind of um, database uh, right now on what's out there for people. So we stumble into programs and we also wind up duplicating programs because we literally don't know that somebody else is already doing something that we're doing. So, you know, I, I train, um, uh, I, I provide classes in um, identifying job opportunities in the creative fields. Well, uh, and, and uh, uh, intern experience through that program is called Creative Futures, and it's a, it's a project of the Creative Alliance of New Orleans. But um, there are so many other training programs out there. We don't know each other. What we're doing, so I, I really um, I appreciate the importance of, of that and the value of that database. Is that available somehow also uh, on the website, or is it a more of an in person thing?
3: So it is, we we have gone from the in person model, which was very inefficient, to a database that's online. So the database so is on your so it's on STEM your website,
0: library. STEM Library Lab.
3: Yep, and um, we're encouraging nonprofits right now to add their opportunities, and that can be anything from guest speakers, to field trips, to workshops they're doing, to summer camps. So any nonprofit, any business, any university, any hospital can upload the cool things that they offer to the community into this database, and teachers will be able to sort and filter and find those opportunities. So they
0: can self-add this into your database. It's interactive. Oh Todd, I um I'm impressed. Um I, I congratulate you. Um uh, I wish I had uh, maybe quite the organizational skills that you have to have advanced my um creative futures program a little bit better along the this lines. This is of the, the result Todd, of, of a wonderful team of
3: people, Jane. This is this is not oh, just I know.
0: this is the result I know. of a wonderful well, team pulling that team together alone is is a, a skill base. Um so Todd Wackerman, it is the um stem uh library lab and um i th- think the important thing for folks at the moment is to check in on the website stem library lab thank you so much for what you're doing i think it's really thank you so much for having me i loved having you Talk to you, um again uh keep us in, uh, uh keep us involved let us know when you have certain um uh, programmatic developments that you think people should know about
3: absolutely Thank Thank you you
0: so much. All right. We'll be live next week for Good Friday. And uh, we'll have some special guests uh, joining us. And I am looking forward to talking about what unifies us across religions rather than what divides us. It's Ramadan, it's Passover, it's Easter. I mean, they're connected and we should be too. This is Jean Nathan, and I hope you enjoy the show. Talk with you next week.